Welcome to Taking It to the Streets. I'm your host, Andy Goldman from sunny St. Pete, Florida. This is the show where we take it to the streets, knowing if we don't, the streets will take it to us. Welcome back to Taking It to the Streets. It's Andy Goldman. There's no other way to say this than this is an absolute thrill and a half what's about to occur for me personally. I know that I always like to give a quip, a story about how it relates to me. It's crazy that the next guest actually on some level does uh, go down my path on some level. 1985. Let's rewind the hands of time to 1985. I'm a redheaded, freckled, very green kid from Northbrook, Illinois, sophomore year, Glenbrook North High School. And I'm in my broadcast journalism class where we're told to send out a letter, correspondence again. This is before the internet. This is before cable even. Send a letter to whomever to see what the business is like. See if they'll give you the opportunity to interview them and get to know broadcast journalism in a more formal environment. So it didn't take me more than five seconds at that point in my life. I immediately sealed my envelope to Mark Jean Greco, who was then at Channel 5, WMAQ, the NBC broadcast group in Chicago. And I swear he got back to me uh, within a week, which was lightning speed back then. Went down there with my dad. My dad took the train to work every day. Dad took me over to MAQ. There I was very nervous with my tape recorder and had a microphone that came out of it. Mark came down. We went over to the cafeteria. It was the highlight of my days before I actually went into radio after college for the for the Johnson daughters. It was amazing. Fast forward 39 years. Here I am taking it to the streets for Wrightwood Medical Incorporated. And I thought, who best to talk a little bit about the Super Bowl and about broadcast journalism from where it was way back then, but Mark Jean Greco. Mark, thank you for joining us. It's great to have you. Andy, this is so unbelievable to reconnect, and I'm so relieved that you actually got out of high school. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, I'm so proud of your success, and uh, we just had a conversation off air that was really enriching for me. And uh, By the way, Taking It to the Streets is the only Chicago album that wasn't a number like Chicago 1, 2, 3, whatever. Chicago Transit Authority was the first album. And then Taking It to the Streets was the only album, I think, of 36 more that didn't have a number oh, on it. So. You, you got it wrong there, Mark. I don't. I hate to correct you. The Taking It to the Streets is the Doobie Brothers. Oh, that's right. That's right. Oh, I'm thinking of Hot Streets. <laughs> hot Streets. I am so sorry. See, you, you just woke up a senile old man. So, yeah, nope. You did say... Turn back the hands of time, which is Tyrone Davis. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> thank well, you, sir. Well, this takes me into my, my first question to you is that you grew up really also aspiring to be a radio guy. Your early life in Baltimore, excuse me, not Baltimore, Buffalo, you'd have the antenna up and you were getting uh, Dick Biondi and John Records, Landecker and Larry Lujak all across America. It seemed like you wanted to be a top 40 DJ. That's all I wanted in my life. I was eight years old, nine, ten years old in my room in Williamsville, New York, outside Buffalo. And I could pick up every 50,000 watt blowtorch across the country at night because the signals would change and go directional instead of circular. And so I could get W. Uh, 
you know, WLS, Super CFL, CKLW in Detroit, 66 NBC in New York, WWL in New Orleans. I could get all these stations, and I was such a geek. I collected jingle packages. I actually went to Dallas and sat in. I talked my way into watching Tower of Power and the Johnny Man Singers make jingles for all the top 40 radio stations in the country. These two companies were called Pams of Dallas and TM Productions. And then I would collect air checks of all the DJs I loved. Larry Lujak, John Records, Landecker, as you said, all these great Chicago DJs along with Pat Holiday and brother Bill Gable and all these guys in Detroit. And I would say CKLW is probably the greatest top 40 rock station ever. So that's all I ever wanted to be. And I just kind of fell in to television along the way. But when I came to Chicago, I was freaked out when I met Dick Biondi in the elevator and John Records Landecker. And Larry Lujak called me once when I was at Channel 5, invited me to his golf tournament, Mark, Larry Lujak. And I'm like, yeah, right, who is this really? Um, and so I was just starstruck and dumbfounded and got to know these guys. Dick Biondi would come into my office, make coffee, and we talk about radio in Buffalo in the 60s. I was seven years old when he was on WKBW in Buffalo. Amazing. Um, so, yeah, uh, all I cling to now is the history of the American Football League, uh, R&B and funk music from the 60s, and um, you know, all the nostalgia stuff, muscle cars from the 60s and 70s. That's where I am at this point. Well, who who were you? Who'd you like back then? Who So you're 18 years old in 1970. I'm, I'm off the top of my head. I'm thinking the Doobie Brothers, Jackson Brown, The Who, The Stones, well, Zeppelin. Well, back then, yeah, I, on my way to the University of Dayton and, you know, growing up in Buffalo, it was mostly all Motown R&B. It really was. And then when you get to, to college and you meet a whole bunch of guys from different parts of the country, then there was the whole Allman Brothers phase and, you know, Southern rock and all that. But I, I never really went uh, mainstream white rock bands. I was still clinging to R&B and I worked with a DJ in Dayton, Gene by Golly Berry, who was voted the number one disc jockey in America in 1957. They yeah. hired him. And he was he was in his late 70s when they hired him to do an overnight oldies show. And I was a kid in college uh, doing the news and sports on that show. He also owned a recording studio in Dayton. They used to get all these huge R&B funk bands to record. Ohio Players, Earth, Wind & Fire, Lakeside, Faso, um, Frankie Beverly and Mays, yeah. all these unbelievable bands. And I could sit there and watch them record. And so I, I never let it go. But then, of course, you know, I look back now and have a new appreciation for music, music that I didn't really pay a lot of attention to because it was so mainstream. But yeah, obviously, Doobie Brothers, Eagles, um, you know, um, I, I, I always say I missed the 80s because I got married and had three kids. So I missed everything about the 80s. Except, and I always thought the music and the clothes and the cars were awful. Pop <laughs> culture was terrible. But I loved Huey Lewis and the News. And there were a couple other bands of the 80s um, who were the exceptions. But, yeah, I was an R&B guy my whole life. Interesting. So the so the Whispers, Rick James, Luther Vandross. Oh my God! I can't believe you even know the Whispers. Absolutely. I think they. they Rick, Rick James, by the way, is from Buffalo. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, uh, 
some kind of lover? Is that is that ring a bell for the Whispers? Was that one of their big hits? Well, you know, uh, Rocksteady was, you know, their big yeah. crossover hit, but they had a million Get You in the Mood. I mean, they had maybe 10 or 15 R&B chart records. Walter and Scotty were twin brothers. They were the lead singers. And my roommate from college uh, wound up uh, joining a booking agency and then created his own. And he would book all these groups into clubs. So I got to meet all these guys. Which, again, was another incredible thrill. Um, was it uh, the Isley Brothers came to Chicago Theater several years ago. And the uh, place was packed. And it was the night Whitney Houston died. And they stopped their concert right in midstream and started crying and telling stories about Whitney Houston. And I was backstage with them. And, you know, these are, you know, some of the things that I've just been afforded all these privileges just from, you know, having a job in Chicago in media. That's that's so cool. Uh, before we go on to something else, I mean, because I love that music too. I mean, who was more underrated, the SOS band or the Gap band? Uh, I think the Gap band. I think Gap band had better hits. Uh, do you remember Charlie Wilson and uh, all those guys? Um, well, let me think. Um, I mean, there were so many guys that you know. I I go back to the Dells, the Dramatics, the Delphonics all that music coming out of Philadelphia and Chicago. And once again, uh, I don't know if you remember uh, uh, Herb Kent, the cool gent. Uh, yes. WVON here in Chicago. He had a thing called Battle of the Bands where you would pick a band and then your opponent had a band and you would play all their hits and go head to head and explain why this was better than that back and forth. So I'm going, I'm in studio with Gene Chandler and Martha Reeves of the Vandellas. Oh, I mean, how amazing is that? You know, the Duke of Earl and, the, and Martha Reeves, the lead singer of the Vandellas. And they couldn't have been nicer. And we go back and forth yelling and screaming at each other about who was better, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, yeah, you never turn down an opportunity when you get it. No, no. All right. Uh, I mean, before we talk sports, and we, of course, will we'll talk sports with you. Um, I think your career is so interesting. Because we got to go there, Mark. Uh, to, to know your career is to know a guy that walked the line a little bit and enjoyed walking the line. I think you did it, looking back at it, uh, almost with journalistic integrity and credibility that today um, nobody would take the risk. Nobody absolutely would take the risk. You'd be looked at as a lunatic. So let's just cut to the, to the big one, the elephant in the room, your dismissal from ABC. Why did it happen? They had, they had brought you back on multiple long-term deals when they referenced that you had poor taste prior to that. So I, I don't understand. I know what you did. I understand. We, we don't have to retry the case. But what I'm trying to understand is really why it happened. Well, Andy, it was about uh, a certain person. It was about two people, myself and, and the complainant. And um, it could be construed as misogynist, as racist, as whatever, but it wasn't. It was about two people and, and the history that we had. Um, and I think, you know, just like you can't compare players of different eras in sports, the eras changed in television and radio. Uh, back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we got away with murder. You could pretty much do whatever you wanted. And it just became more and more conservative as years went by. Um, you could label it, oh, you know, you're a victim of, you know, the whole woke cancellation thing, cancel culture. Um, the thing was, 
I have never changed. I was always the guy off the air, the guy on the air, same guy. And I pushed the envelope and sometimes I stepped over the line and I had several suspensions throughout my career, but we always held up the ratings. And um, when I left Channel 5 and went to Channel 7, uh, you know, they paid me handsomely to jump. Um, and like you said, I had nothing but five-year guaranteed contracts my entire career until the end of my career when they were only giving out three-year deals because, you know, local television news was obviously in decline. It was becoming an antiquated platform. But um, it was as if corporate was kind of tired of me and my act and was looking for an out. And uh, this particular person provided them the opportunity. And um, I think she was just hypersensitive about a lot of things. And it just all came to a head. And um, she, because of her enablers, has become an extremely powerful person at that particular station. And so that's how it went down. Look, I had a year and a half left on my deal. I was counting the days to retirement. I had a spectacular run during the heyday of television. And, um, you know, we reached a financial settlement and I, I got to leave early, which is, which is all good. But as you and I discussed earlier, people say, well, you've been out for three years now. You, you know, you should be over it by now and, and just moving on. It actually eats at me even more as the years go by because compared to other things that I had done and said on the air during my career, uh, this was the most benign thing I'd ever said. And uh, it, made, it was pretty obvious that there were things behind the scene that were in the works. But again, uh, this was all about eras. Times had changed and it had become a hypersensitive media situation, hypersensitive uh, social and cultural situation. So, you know, that's basically it in a nutshell. Interesting and sad. Interesting and sad. Um, thanks for sharing that. I mean, it's, it's very candid. Um, Chicago's been home to so many just iconic legends. And, and when I hear your words about how it went down for you at the end, how would Hawk Harrelson or Harry Carey or even Mike North, I know who's still out there toggling, how would they survive in these waters currently? And And so much of their shtick was to walk the line in a much, much, much more aggressive line than what you walked. Uh, there's no way any of us would survive. None of them. Not, not one second. Not not five seconds. Um, because everything has changed so much. Um, yeah, Mike is still doing his, uh, his gambling picks and stuff. And, you know, we still correspond and we go back and forth on Twitter with each other. But uh, you can't be blunt. You can't leave it out there. ESPN Radio is doing a, a cool thing called Unhinged, which is only for air on their app, where these guys just go off. And it's uh, the most vulgar, crazy, no holes barred kind of exchange. So, uh, you know, people that still want to go there and hear authentic, crazy stuff, they can do Unhinged. And then, you know, crosstalk on ESPN Radio. Uh, that gets a little dicey as well. But again, there are parameters, there are restrictions. I think the closest thing to uh, a sports talk show letting it rip is now the Pat McAfee show, where they will just let it go live unedited, uncensored on ESPN2 and then on ESPN, 
you know, it's taped and they'll clean it up and, and they'll, they'll edit out the swearing and, you know, some references that are no longer acceptable. So, um, yeah, I mean, I look back on some of my old tapes and things. When I had Steve McMichael on Sunday night, he was my bear. And those shows were legendary. It was me and Mongo going up against Johnny Morris and Mike Ditka. Mm. And Dit and and uh, Channel 7 with Tim Weigel had Walter Payton and Jim McMahon. And they were third in the ratings on Sunday night because neither one of them really said anything. Right. It was people flipping back and forth to see how drunk Ditka was and to see <laughs> what McMichael was going to do to me or what he was going to say. And the ratings were through the roof. And this could never happen today. We actually, on one night, put a monitor on the set at Channel 5 and turned on Channel 2. And Mongo proceeded to mock Ditka <laughs> live in real time. And it, it, it was so great. And I remember one night, um, they, they had been beaten, tough loss. Johnny Morris comes on at Channel 2 and says, well, Mike, tough loss. But he goes, wait a minute, before we get into the game, I just want to say something. I'm never going to talk to that Mark G. Greco again. Blah, 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 blah. And he, cause I used to mock Ditko all the time on my shows. I, I would have him in my graphics and make reference to, you know, stupid stuff that he had said or done. And my whole thing was, he's not the Pope. He's not the president. You know, he's a football coach. I agree. I couldn't agree more. And, and he took himself real seriously. And here's Saturday night live doing a, a, a bit about him. Obviously, you did as well. I know he didn't like it because, and furthermore, he wasn't uh, exactly Lombardi or Bill Walsh as a coach. No, no, so, he wasn't a great coach. He was a great motivator. X's and O's, forget it. It's just run the football and play defense and not very creative at all and just a taskmaster screaming and yelling. But to Mike's credit, in his later years, he admitted that his ego got out of control and all the endorsements, the money, the fame, the Super Bowl victory just propelled him in, up to legendary status. He admitted that he did not handle it well. You know, and you kind of, once you reach a certain age, you look back and you kind of calm down and sort through things and say, yeah, I was, I was kind of a jerk. But he didn't like me at all. And I wore that as a badge of honor. And I, I think I that's, remember, yeah. Um, so I remember the night he got fired. Of course, he's the lead in the newscast. And I have the graphic of, of Mike up there, and I forgot what the cut line was. But then as we moved on to other things in sports, I still had Mike in every graphic, but he was fading with each story when yeah. we come back on camera. So by the end of the sportscast, it was just a blank graphic. Mike wasn't in there anymore. And, yeah, he didn't, he didn't like that too much. But we always, you know, my, my sportscasts were always graphic-driven, and I always try to just be a, a smart ass and be as sarcastic as I could because that's me. I got that from my mom. I was just a smart-ass little Irish-Italian kid from Buffalo going to Jesuit prep school, and, you know, that's just who I was. And, you know, it took a while to be comfortable on the air, you know, I got my first job in Dayton and then Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> I didn't want to go there, but they kept offering me more money. And that's where I really learned how to do television. Because, again, I was a radio guy. And I was just doing weekend TV in Dayton while doing Monday through Friday morning drive radio. So when I got to Louisville, I really learned how to write to video and how to do television. And I remember my first night there, 
it's uh, I'm the sports director. I'm the new Monday through Friday guy. I'm in my early twenties and I'm scared to death. And I, I, I'm really nervous, but I get through my first show and everything went well. And back then they would just put phone calls through. There was no screening, nothing. And uh, we had a newsroom set and my office was my position on the set. And you had a little princess phone hanging there and the newsroom was behind us. So the phone rings the second I get off the air and it's a viewer. And he says, Hey, you that new sports guy? And I said, Yes, sir. He goes, What are you, some kind of friggin' Puerto Rican or what? And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm in the wrong town. Um, but I learned everything about TV there and that that, you know, springboarded me to Chicago. I'm more fascinated asking you a couple of questions if I could about the eighty five Bears than I am about the bull yeah. than I am about the Bulls in the nineties. Because the well, Bears are totally irrelevant now, so forget it. Cor- and, you know, I I have just left baseball in the rearview mirror. So let's talk well, Bears. There's tragedy. The Bears of '85 are almost like a Shakespearean saga. Um, yeah. What's occurred to Bears players specifically from that team since that game, from L.A. Mike Richardson to Jim McMahon to poor Mongo? I'm I'm probably not even. There's probably many more that I'm missing that have kind of fallen off the face of the earth, have had major health issues. First question, and it just came to me a second ago, and of course, you never hear this pitched anywhere but taking it to the streets, is if they would have played Miami again, would they have beaten them? Because Miami, if you remember, beat them like a drum. And I, I wondered myself, would Marino have beaten them if it was Miami instead of New England in the Super Bowl? Well, I'm what sure. a bad matchup, Mark. Was, Mark, it was a bad matchup for them. Do you remember how that game yeah. went down? It was Nat Moore made a, made a touchdown with such helicopter spin? Yeah. Um, I was at that game. It was a Monday night game. And, uh, you know, they were a little bit too full of themselves at the time. And Miami was really prepared. And Marino had such a quick release, beat the Blitz every single time. The 46, they had figured it out. And, uh, you know, blown coverage, and there it was. So I'm not sure the Bears would have beaten them again. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they had the perfect game plan. And, you know, as human beings with, you know, biometrics, everything, your your whole uh, mental capability, you can't bring it every single game. And if you're undefeated, it's just human nature that you're going to have a letdown. And that's what happened. It was almost a relief to get that loss out of the way, you know? Mm-hmm. It was just it was just too much pressure to deal with. But uh, I never had more fun covering that team. You know, a 53-man roster, 40 of them had their own radio and TV shows. Um, you know, they were media moguls, and you had to be at the old Hallis Hall early in the morning, ready to go with your cameraman fired up, or else you're going to miss Ditka sticking gum on the lens of your camera. You're going to miss McMahon dressed in some goofy outfit. Uh, Walter Payton coming out the back door with his Luger shooting birds out of trees. And remember, <laughs> that was in a residential neighborhood. Yeah. And just crazy stuff. Fridge doing weird things. Chasing these guys down in the parking lot. Um, it was so competitive back then. We used to... Uh, unplug each other's live shots we get in fights in the locker room i remember i got into it with jim rose when i was still at five he was at seven and uh 
Richard Dent goes, I got a hundred bucks on JR. And Mongo says, I'll take the little Italian guy. <laughs> and they're making bets and we're, we're ready to throw down. We go outside and just talk it out saying, look, we're being idiots here and they're making fun of us. We said, okay, cool. But it was so viciously competitive. I tell everybody, Anchorman was not a comedy. That was a documentary because <laughs> short of street fights with medieval weapons, that's exactly what it was. You never spoke to anybody that worked at the competition. You sabotaged each other. You'd do anything to beat the other guy on a story. I remember I was so upset because, you know, Johnny Morris played with Mike Ditka and Ditka would always give Johnny the scoops. He'd give them all the stories and he'd be breaking all the stuff. It was really, really frustrating. And I remember um, the press room was downstairs and you were not allowed to go upstairs. But, of course, Channel 2's cameraman wound up being upstairs and Ditka was roller skating through the hallways on rollerblades. <laughs> and that was like the biggest piece of video you could get. And I was just livid, you know, that we had gotten beaten with that. It wasn't about... Uh, you know, trades or game plans or injury reports. It was about getting the goofy stuff, getting the cool stuff. And that's what that was. But I loved it because you were always on your toes and there was no better feeling than to beat the competition. And it was just, that was the heyday. Interesting. Did you watch the games this weekend? I'm sure you did. I, I want to make sure. a point. Okay. I, I There is such a beatdown uh, occurring towards Dan Campbell. Okay. It's almost, it's yeah. almost a light version of Bartman. If I could even put it in the same, <laughs> I, I feel it is. I think it's in, I think it's in the same, it's a one a to, I don't think Campbell's going to have to move to a different city and change his name, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I see where you're going with uh, this. I think he's a hero. Okay. I, let me, let me make my pitch. Absolutely love him. Let me make my pitch of why I think he's a hero. The, unknowing public and media that is blaming him for going for it repetitively on fourth down, obviously didn't watch any of their games prior to championship Sunday, where he had made a habit of grooming his team for going for it on fourth down. Um, he's, I also need somebody from the mainstream media to make the suggestion, seeing what he did, the game he called, he's on the road. He's a dome team on the road at San Francisco. Okay. For you horse racing fans out there, that's a turf horse trying dirt for the first time. Okay, he's right. he's not in a great spot for his football team. I think he took one for A, the GM, and B, the defense. He didn't trust his defense, and that's why he went for it every single time. And you have people making all these comments about the analytics. Don't be a slave to the analytics. He cushioned the going for it in the second half. San Francisco kicked the field on the first possession. Detroit could have answered it. You're missing the point. He didn't trust his defense. And the defense was created by that GM. And, Mark, you know what? Their defense blows. That's just the bottom line. Well, their defense actually played better than usual. Now, their corners are terrible. Sutton and Vildor, who is a Bears cast off. Uh, they have decent safeties, you know. But... Um, and they have a kind of a tough linebacking core, but again, they're, they're undersized. Yeah, it's not a good defense by any means. But the thing is, Dan Campbell wears his heart on his sleeve. He's the most lovable, tough guy you can imagine. For me personally, I love the Lions, followed them all year because it's that Great Lakes camaraderie, Cleveland, Chicago, 
Buffalo, Detroit. You know, Detroit is as maligned as Buffalo is. You know, the economy's bad. Uh, the weather's terrible. Everybody's out of work. The city's, you know, corrupt and run down. It's a racist town. That, that's all you hear. So I, I'm the biggest Detroit fan in the world. Once my bills got eliminated again and broke my heart. But Dan Campbell, it, to me, it was a case of, look, that's the identity of this team. Go for it. Go for broke. Live by the sword. Die by the sword. Swashbuckling. Just go. Um, I just think in this particular case, you talk to any other former head coach or current coach, they're going to tell you, if you're home, if it's fourth and one to fourth and five, if you're home, you go for it. If you're on the road, you take the points. That's what every single coach would tell you. But he created the image of this team and, and his players love him so much because he is so emotionally invested and he's just going to stick with who he was. You know, yeah, he should have. He should have kicked those field goals, but his gut, his heart, and his soul teamed up to override his brain. Um, but I don't blame him for, for that. And what's funny is, you know, everybody is just, you, you, you read social media, you watch every talk show. Initially, it's the outrage of how do you not take the points? Right. And then as the as the week went by and another week goes by now, the counter take is popular. Like everybody's jumping on the bandwagon saying, you know what, Dan Campbell, you know, that's who he is and I love him and I'm going to ride with him. It's funny how people change their mind when they have some perspective or moreover, they're just copying other people's takes. But the thing is, I blame John, John Harbaugh more for his loss because he's got the number one rushing offense in the league, doesn't run the ball at all in the AFC championship game and makes zero adjustments at halftime. So I would blame John Harbaugh more than I would blame Dan Campbell for their conference title losses, for sure. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, am I crazy? Jameer Gibbs is the best running back in the NFL right now. Uh, he's not there yet, but man, he is so friggin' fast. And he, you know, they learned how to use him. When uh, Montgomery was injured, so he, he got a lot more snaps, a lot more reps. He is so quick. He can turn the corner. He can hit the hole now. Uh, criticism of him coming out of college is he was not patient. So he would just hit the hole whether it was open or not. He'd just run into a lineman's butt. But he was no longer a rookie by the end of the year. And the fact that Montgomery was injured for four or five games gave Jameer Gibbs the opportunity to show who he was. And again, the Lions knew how to use him then. So, yeah, I, I think he's right there. He's right there. So it's basically McCaffrey, then Gibbs. Yeah, and I love Christian McCaffrey. I, I, I love him. You know, um, he is so powerful. He is so driven. He is so singularly focused. And you know, it's tough to be a fan to watch the Super Bowl because I, you know, I grew up in an AFL city and I loved the AFL and I think I was the only guy against the merger. And I always loved the Chiefs as being really the charter franchise of that Rebel League. So I've always loved the Chiefs and I loved Hank Stram and Lenny Dawson, you know, Otis Taylor, and I loved those teams. And so I've always had a thing for the Chiefs. But again, the 49ers, what a spectacular organization. 
And for McCaffrey to go there, his career was going to be totally wasted in Carolina. Totally mm. wasted. Mm-hmm. And I'm so happy for him. And again, I'm out of an age where I followed his dad. His dad was a great player. Yeah. So yeah. Um, McCaffrey right now, I would say, is number one best all-purpose back in the league, hands down, no question. It's funny, you're, you're obviously a big Bills fan, grew up a Bills fan. What's been the more torturous existence? And you think about it, the, to be a Bills fan for the last 45 years or to be a Bears fan? Uh, I say Bills because I'm biased because that's the way I grew up. I mean, I was eight years old in 1960 when they got a franchise and I went through the whole Jack Kemp, Daryl LaMonica thing. And, you know, they won back-to-back AFL championships in 64 and 65. And Andy, it just occurred to me that after next Sunday, I will have seen all 58 Super Bowls live, Mm. either on television or in person, eight Super Bowls in person, covering seven of them. One is a fan when I was actually at the Bills' first Super Bowl against the Giants. What a night. I'm with my college roommate who was a Giants fan. My parents were at the game. Whitney Houston sang the national anthem. Yeah. Which goes down in history as the greatest yes. ever. It's the Persian Gulf War with jets flying over a purple and pink sky. So cool. It was the most incredible night of my life. And people forget that Thurman Thomas broke one around the left side and he's going down the sidelines. He's gone for a touchdown. There never would have been a wide right. They would have won the game. And a DB or a linebacker on the Giants just a desperately dove and just nicked the back of his heel and he went down. Otherwise, who knows? They would have perhaps won four Super Bowls in a row. But you look back, there are t-shirts, t-shirts that go around Buffalo that say wide right, uh, forward lateral, in the crease, referencing the Sabres in the Stanley Cup final when Brett Hall scored a goal out. He was clearly in the crease when that was a rule. And then you add 13 seconds, and now we have another wide right. What franchise has two wide rights in their history? Well, Although I don't blame Tyler Bass, and it's it's not because he missed it. That just would have tied it. There was a minute 30 left. Mahomes would have marched down the field and broken our hearts anyway. But – it's just the Bills are cursed. They really are. And I would stack Bills Mafia frustrations up against any Bear fans from here to eternity. I mean, no one suffered more than, than the Bills fans. Here we go again. I truly didn't mean to mention Steve Bartman's name twice in this podcast. <laughs> I don't think his rabbi has mentioned him twice in his life. So this is a, this is a record. Steve, if you're listening... I didn't mean to draw you in, but you keep talking about the wide right, and I feel like that's part of uh, obviously the 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 identity of Buffalo. And why isn't there? And I go back to what we were talking about, Dan Campbell, who's I feel is going for it because he doesn't trust his defense. Why can't someone say that Norwood's kick was for all the marbles and it was a forty-eight yarder? It wasn't a chip shot. So why why is why is the story that he and uh, Mark it was not a chip shot. I think the long that was would have been the long of his career. Oh yeah, high pressure situation, no question about it. By the way, people forget that he was accorded a hero's welcome when two million people showed up in downtown Buffalo to applaud him and give him a standing ovation and have him break into tears. That's what Bills fans do. 
And, you know, I, I, I get choked up just reliving that. So, yeah, Bill's fans realized, you know, it wasn't his fault. <laughs> that, that was a tough, tough play to make. Um, uh, Scott Norwood's never been blamed. If you're a true Bills fan, he has never been blamed for that. But wide right is about Buffalo, a small blue collar, you know, rough, tough town that is always mocked, you know, Rust Belt City, armpit of the East. I mean, so many names. Gary, Indiana. How about Gary, Indiana with Niagara Falls attached? Yeah, well, that's horrible. Yeah, that's really bad. That's about the worst thing you could ever say. But okay. I said, growing up there, I have to tell you, it is a small Buffalo. Chicago is a gigantic cosmopolitan version of Buffalo. And Buffalo is just a miniature Chicago. It, it really is. The summers are spectacular there. Canada's right next door. You know, people in Chicago have like a cottage in Wisconsin or Michigan. If you're from Buffalo, you have a place on the other side of the lake in Canada. You just go over the bridge. And that was my life growing up. In the winters, yeah, we get 10 feet of snow, but we were into it. It was, I remember the snow would drift over our garage roof. You'd open the garage and it'd be a wall of snow. And my brothers and sisters and I would tunnel to the street and see how far we could get down the driveway before it caved in. We identified with enduring those kinds of winters and the joke was when there was a huge storm they would shut everything down and say only emergency vehicles allowed on the road or if you're in a bowling league (laughs) (laughs) but the whole thing about buffalo they they don't say it's a small city it's a big living room because everyone's related by blood or marriage everybody knows everyone and it's the same exact blue collar same ethnic mix of people, same attitude as Chicago. And the greatest compliment I got, and I got it several times throughout my career, was, you're from Chicago, right? What parish did you grow up in? Because it's exactly the same. So so there know, really is. Fans, yeah. Bears fans can relate, but I don't think the Bears fans have had more heartbreak than the Bills. Well, and you just gave a great clarity to really the term mafia. And how it really does really resonate and it really is applicable to the Buffalo fan base. Yeah, let me be honest with you, Andy. As uh, a person with Sicilian blood, my dad was 100% Sicilian and my mom half Irish, half German. Um, I'm not a real big fan of the term Bill's Mafia. And, you know, my dad hated it. My my grandfather hated it. but it's really a story of when my dad was a little kid, he beat up a kid at school and that other kid happened to be the child of a local mob boss. And my grandfather was so terrified. He locked my dad in the meat closet for about a day or two, fearing mm. that they were going to come for him. Mm. And, you know, we had the, we had the basement kitchen and the show kitchen, the show kitchen upstairs. You never cooked in there. You never ate in there. You cooked and ate in the basement kitchen. And there was a closet with hanging meat, sausage and stuff like that, with a dirt floor. And he had my dad in there hiding. Wow. And um, there are other stories of my grandfather's good friend refused to, you know, to pay out. And uh, they cut off his pinky finger. I mean, all kinds of stuff like that. And my grandfather and my grandmother came over. They never spoke any English. Um, and when I came to Chicago, quick story, it's early 90s. I'm still at Channel 5. 
and I made some mob joke on the air during one of my sportscasts. And it's a newsroom set. So I, the second I get off the set, I go to my desk. The phone's ringing. Mark, this is Dominic DeFrisco of the Joint Civic Committee of Italian Americans. And I just have to tell you, I really take issue with you making mob jokes on the air because it's like black people using the N-word with one another. It perpetuates the stereotype. And if you are telling mafia jokes, then non-Italians, non-Sicilians think it's okay to go that way. Mm -hmm. And that stuck with me forever. And I became great friends with Dominic and part of the Joint Civic Committee and everything else. And, you know, my dad was the same way. And again, back in the 60s and 50s, my father spoke fluent Sicilian, but he didn't teach us. We're going to live in the suburbs. We're Americans. Your mom is not Italian or Sicilian. So that's the way we were raised. And I really regret that. I wish we would have had a little bit more ethnic background. But I'm not a big fan of the term Bill's Mafia, but I've kind of resolved in my own mind to be comfortable with it that it doesn't mean a mob or organized crime. It just means we are all so tight and we are all brothers and sisters and, you know, we are galvanized around this particular team. So that's the way I try to live with it. How did it come to pass? Where where did that pejorative term, uh, man, it's, it, it, we, we're taking me down these different roads. I mean, we're seeing, you know, the Washington Redskins have to change their name. The Cleveland Indians have to change their name. And yet Bill's Mafia, and I realize that's not their name. That's their nickname is the Bill's Mafia. That's a big part of the story. But how did it even, I I don't remember them, you know, back in the day being referred to as the Bill's Mafia. Well, it's only in recent years. It's only the last, I'd say, six or seven years. uh, There's a huge Italian population in Buffalo. Everybody's Catholic, whether you're Polish, Irish, or Italian. Um, it just kind of happened over the past six or seven years, really. I don't know where it came from. I really don't. I don't know who coined it. I don't know how it's been perpetuated. But, you know, it's here to stay, obviously. And as you said, it's very, it's unique and it's really stands out in this age of, you know, wokeism, cancel culture, just trying to be a little more respectful. Uh, yeah, it's weird that it's stuck. You know, totally, totally. All right. Before yeah. I get on to my final question for you, wh- wh- give me your thoughts on the Super Bowl. Who do you like? Uh, I, uh, for some reason, I just think the Niners are going to pull it out. And I'm a huge Brock Purdy fan. And I hate the way that he's being torn down. Let me just say this. Cam Newton, shut up. Yeah. Seriously. Okay. You're, you're, you're relevant now. Live with it. Hey, you are a great, great quarterback. You're one of the prototype, big, strong, running quarterbacks, elusive. Uh, You got beat up. You had a lot of injuries, but you can't let it go. It's his daily podcast rant about how he's so much better than 15 quarterbacks in the league right now, and he can still play. And, you know, the gaudy outfits, the crazy wardrobe, and just ripping Brock Purdy every chance he gets, it's like, Dude, you got to let it go. You mm-hmm. had your time. You're an MVP. You, you're done. Stop it. National and, championship at Auburn. Yeah. Um, but I, I love the Niners. I love that offense. I think, you know, Shanahan is just, it's just unbelievable. When they are humming, 
it is a joy to watch. And I love their linebacking core. But the thing is, you can say the same thing about the Chiefs. I, as a Bills fan, I should hate the Chiefs. I should hate them. I should be rooting for the 49ers. But like I said, I've always been a huge Chiefs fan since they were the Dallas Texans. And um, when they are humming, Mahomes is so entertaining. So this is really one of the first Super Bowls where I can sit and watch it without a vested interest, without I just want to see a great game. And, you know, I, I see these things on social media where, oh, this poll says that the Kansas City Chiefs are the most hated team in the NFL. Not true. The Dallas Cowboys are the most hated franchise in the NFL. And it's all because of Jerry Jones, not yeah. necessarily their players yeah. or their coaches. I never liked Mike McCarthy either, but it's Jerry Jones. Dude, your ego is so immense. You can't just let it go. It's not enough to be a billionaire, oil tycoon, real estate tycoon, mm -hmm. own the Dallas Cowboys, the richest franchise in NFL history. And you're up there with Premier League soccer teams as far as worth. It's not enough for him. He is so desperate. His entire adult life has been me, me, look at me. I'm a football guy. I know football. You need to respect me as a football guy. Dude, you're not. You're yeah. an owner who continues to meddle, who has a radio show, who does a post-game interview after every game, breathing down the neck of your head coach and your quarterback. You're so – he just loves to perpetuate the drama. He's a snake oil sell, salesman selling his product, and everybody's buying into it. The media eats up Dallas Cowboy content. Yeah. And – which you know, number I, GM? Which I, I, number I, I, GM, Mark? the Super Bowl and say, hey, I hope it's a great game. I hope it's a great game. Yeah. Wh which number GM would we be on in Dallas over whatever, a 23-year period, if his name wasn't Jerry Jones with what they've done on the field? <laughs> oh, God. Who knows, man? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously. Um, here, Here's a question I've got for you that I, this might have been the first thing I put on my middle notepad here that I'm reading from. I'm a native Chicagoan, as you know, okay? Uh -huh. Long suffer. Uh, I don't want to give my resume, but long suffer, it's safe to say. Um, why are these teams so bad? Okay, and, and I, I, have to, I have to give a few numbers to, to back that up. And, and I mean, the, the, these, Mark, these teams are prodigiously bad for very long periods of time. The Bears have won one Super Bowl in the Super Bowl era, Okay. They are an original team. They have won one Super Bowl. The Cubs and Sox, now this, this will really get your barf bags out, Chicago. They've won four titles in over 200 years of baseball cumulatively. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we're all aware of these stats, Andy. <laughs> well, here's the, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Let's just. There's right only to... so many GMs and, and, and coaches you can blame it on. You blame it on ownership. Family ownership, the McCaskies, the Ricketts, the Wirtz, the Reinsdorfs, okay? Jerry Reinsdorf hated me throughout my career. And again, I wore that as a badge of honor. He's a bad guy. He's a ruthless businessman. And he is so smug and pompous and arrogant about it all that he has publicly stated business conferences and to media outlets, here's the formula. You make all your money, 
and, you know, questionable practices with Belcor and all the other investments that he made, uh, closing down senior citizens' homes, leaving them homeless. But I won't even go down that road. Um, you buy your teams. And by the way, lucked out with Michael Jordan because, you know, they could have taken Sam Bowie. They just, they lucked out. It, it, there was a roll of the dice, okay? Mm -hmm. With the White Sox, you know, they didn't pay a lot of money for that team. It just came together. And Ozzie brought them together, okay? But here's Jerry Reinsdorf, who has openly admitted it, mocking his fans by saying, here's the formula. You invest just enough to try to finish second or third every year and just continue to give fans hope. But don't really dump a boatload of money in there to try to win a championship. And it's so insulting, and he just laughs at all these lemmings, all these gullible fans. The Bulls still lead the league in attendance in the NBA, I believe. It's And, and it's a horrible product. They, as Charles Barkley said a couple of weeks ago, the Bulls are totally irrelevant. They're one of the most irrelevant sports franchises in existence right now. The Ricketts, don't get me started with their politics and their business dealings. Um, you know, they keep talking about, yeah, we're going to turn it over. Yeah, we're... No, fans will continue to pay. It doesn't matter how bad the product is. And Chicago, in general, is a perfect example of that. The Wurtzes, okay? Dollar Bill was so old school, so archaic. And Rocky was the regular, cool, funny, smart Wurtz who we could have drinks with as media members and joke about stuff. And, you know, he completely revitalized that franchise. And then... Sadly, toward the end, he morphed back into his old man with the Kyle Beach scandal and everything else. Um, you know, it's it, you just go around. It's ownership. The McCaskies, George Hallis basically invented pro football. OK, his relatives, his offspring, um, there have got to be 30 McCaskies eating from the trough that depend their livelihood on, you know, the income of, of the bears. The McCaskies will never sell. None of the other family ownership groups will sell either. The McCaskies, whose patriarch was George Hallis, they know nothing about football. Right. Absolutely nothing. And that's why their hires have been so bad when you're talking about general managers and head coaches and everything else. So um, to answer your question, it's the ownership the four families who own all the teams in town. That's, that's the problem here. But Mark, if the, if the model is is mediocrity, which it clearly is. So the bears are the home of the seven win season. Generously Comiskey and Wrigley are the home of the 70 win season. And that's generous. Yeah. Um, why do the fans keep, paying to go to a restaurant that says, come to our restaurant, that our best thing about us is our food is so bad and our service is worse. Because Andy, being a sports fan, I say this, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but in many cases, there are certainly exceptions to this rule that I've created. But the more diehard of a fan you are, the more emotionally invested you are in your team, the less of a life I think you actually have. You know, yeah. I think people in this town and every other sports market in this country and around the world. I mean, soccer fans are completely out of their minds, totally irrational whack jobs. It's an escape from your mundane daily life. 
Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if the teams suck. You're going to go to the ballpark. You're going to go to the arena. You're going to go to the stadium. That's your escape. And as human beings, we all have this sense of, you know, tribal unity. We have to belong to a group. So if you're a Bears fan or whatever, a Bills fan, you that's your connection with other people. You identify. You have to be connected. It, it's it's a tribal need for human beings you know let's get super philosophical about it and really get into the whole human consciousness it's it's an escape and they're always going to go and you talk about fan protests and boycott don't buy your season tickets it never works because fans are desperate to be entertained by their sports teams no matter how bad they are plus they all think they're experts and they all think they have the answer and they all think they know more than the GM and the coach and the players themselves. And again, the biggest critics and the biggest fans who want to rant and rave on talk radio, they're the ones who never played a sport in their life and mm-hmm. they want to live vicariously through others. You know, my kids played hockey at a very competitive level from grammar school through college. And I was a hockey dad and loved taking the trips. And, you know, that's how I bonded with my kids. I mean, I love hockey so much. I can't even explain it. And we traveled all over the country in Canada and even in Europe, like watching my kids play. And it's amazing how with my first son, I was your typical real, you know, asshole hockey parent and I got better with my middle son and by the time my third son came around I was a cool calm hockey parent who just sat in the top row of the bleachers and didn't say anything and what helped me was uh, a lot of the kids that my kids played with went on to have NHL careers and a lot of the dads were former NHL players so if you were an athlete yourself you're going to be the guy or the mom who's going to sit there and not say a word and just be encouraging and be positive and root on, you know, your kid and your kid's team. It's the crazy, crazy fans who need to identify with a team who never played a sport in their life, who think they know everything. They love to be depressed and angry and critical. <laughs> they love the negative energy. So, you know, I'm going on and on trying to answer. No, no, no. no. I, I love the answer. I love the answer. The answer. The answer. Desperate for it. Right. Never going to let it go. Well, you you answered it perfectly, and and taught me one is that the self loathing is part of the tonic. That's part yeah, of the secret absolutely. sauce. Is that yes. there's a there's a self loathing piece that it, it's not about uh, that our food and our service are terrible. Please come back and please pay two hundred dollars for a reservation. It's not, it's not that there's just people, the self-loathing, I guess, dovetails into their pathetic, sad lives. Yeah, and it's, it's, absolutely it's a lesser of two evils. Yeah. The food and the service is bad. There's no atmosphere, but we get to go out to dinner. We don't have to stay home. <laughs> right. Know? Right. Um, no, that's exactly it. It's, it's, it, it just, it's that simple. It really is. We're just these, these desperate, desperate, you know, humans who need something to hold on to, to grasp onto. And it is an escape from your mundane daily life. Uh, it really is. I hate to get the last word on you, but I mean, it, it, to me, it's deeper than self-loathing with the Cubs and Sox records. I mean, uh, this, this goes to more of a broken clock is right twice a day. They're, they're challenging that 
bad of <laughs> with their. Well, look at the White Sox. They're they're, they're terrible, Mark. So they're so bad. bad. Not ha- even having Sox Fest. You know, they're going to bring it back next year. But it's an insult to their fans. And even at winning the World Series in 05, the White Sox will always be the second baseball team in Chicago. And it's always the South Side negativity. But the residents there identify with that. And the whole Cubs thing when WGN was a superstation and the Cubs were on TV across the United States, it was cool to be a fan of the lovable losers. And even you look at, I have to identify with that. It's like, yeah, I'm from Buffalo. Yeah, I'm a Bills fan. You know, we take a lot of heat, but we're loyal. And yeah, we've been disappointed so many times. Even I'm guilty of that. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's, I mean, that's where we are as Homo sapiens. <laughs> well, why, why are the guys, why, why do the Tampa Bay Rays get dismissed and their accomplishments year in and year out? How do you go out and hire Chris Getz as your GM instead of hiring Peter Bendix, who's the Tampa GM, or the street sweeper who sweeps streets right outside Tropicana Field before you would ever hire Chris Getz? I mean, why would, you not cle- why would you not clear out Tampa's front office if you're the Chicago White Sox? And why does Tampa still have the Rays? They should be in another city where they're appreciated. Nobody goes to the games. People forget how successful Joe Madden was in Tampa before he came to the Cubs. It's a travesty, that horrible, horrible place where they play. I mean, it's a joke. Chris Getz, let's remind everyone, he was head of the Sox minor league system, which was rated one of the worst in Major League Baseball. Okay, so, yeah, we're going to promote from within. Move yeah. a guy up who was terrible at his former job right. and responsible for, uh, you know, not being able to create a pipeline. And what's their fascination with hiring people from Kansas City? Oh, they're they're obsessed with it. <laughs> they are obsessed with Kansas City players and Kansas <laughs> City front office people. And again, you talk about a mediocre franchise. You know? That's like being obsessed with Ed Wood movies. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good one. But uh, it, it, it boggles the mind and it, it really, you know, as you age, you realize that um, political figures, uh, public service people, uh, general managers, coaches, teachers, uh, CEOs, executives, a lot of these people are not very smart. And they get promoted. They become very successful uh, without really being very bright, without really doing any homework. It's about your personality. It's about your connections. It's about your family. It's it's just right time, right place, being manipulative. Um, it's so amazing. Here's a perfect example I'll leave you with. Doc Rivers. Okay, I love Doc Rivers as a player. He's coached throughout the NBA all over the place. The Bucks fire Adrian Griffin, who, by the way, remember him as a former bull uh first year as a head coach he's like 30 and 5 or something they fire him because all i can think of is that Giannis and damian you know went to ownership and said you know what this guy uh uh-uh. so they hired doc rivers from the broadcast booth and if you look at his playoff record not very successful at all but he's doc rivers he's got a great rap you know, he he just can talk people into stuff. And he's created this persona of being this iconic coach and former player and a media darling. So it's just amazing how 
people who are really that smart or accomplished get huge jobs, no matter what your field. All right, I have something to break to you on this same thing. I, I want to get your two cents on this. This is too good where we're going. And so please just stick with me for, because you're, you're bringing this out of me. This is, this is an interesting story that I want your take on. Okay, I have a friend, I cannot mention his name. Okay, just trust me on this. No, no, this, this, is, this is real. Um, he, if you can't mention him, it's going to be good. So yeah, yeah. Well, he, I, this is more just getting your opinion of, of, of something out of the box of what you just said. It, it brought it out of me. Um, this is a guy who knows basketball. Uh, I mean, knows basketball, Cole, played basketball um, at a high level in high school, borderline walk-on level at a Big Ten university. Okay. And a diehard Chicago guy has not coached any high-level basketball in his life, okay? Now, from what I know, he's in, he has tossed his name into the bucket to be the next DePaul coach. And I swear, I hope he gets it. I hope he gets it. I hope he gets it. I knew okay. you were going there. Okay. I knew you were going there. Because, because he knows a few of the boosters um, that are – that are going to be hiring the next coach. And his pitch is, hey, I am going to be able to work the NIL angle. I am going to be able to absolutely get four assistants like Chris Collins did, who went to our high school, who brought the high school coach from that he played for at Glenbrook North, Brian James, who really is his X's right. and O's guy. And, but here's the deal. I'm going to be able to, based on my business career, be able to drum up support NIL money and make DePaul basketball a business, which is what it is, just like every other college basketball team is currently. Or you guys can continue to hire, you know, Joey Myers, Stubblefield, Lato, and compete in mediocrity. He's giving a pitch on the I can take us there via the connections I know and bring NIL money. Where do you stand on something like that? First of all, you said he played D1? He did not play D1. He did not. He was. I said he was a borderline D1 walk-on talent. Okay, and he was very successful in business after yes. college. Yes. Okay. I say, why the hell not? I would love to see a guy like that get an opportunity. You talk about fresh and a new approach and a different approach. The problem is the first thing I said, when they made a coaching change, I'm like, look, you have Wintrust Arena, okay? It's a really nice new small venue. And it's right there next to McCormick Place. And it, it's perfect. I live right down the street from there. I could walk there. Um, and it's unfortunate that there wasn't enough room on the DePaul campus to build a really nice arena because ideally you want your basketball arena to be on campus. You know, they could have wedged it in next to the L over there in that green space. But again, that got very political. And, you know, this this city is so messed up. It's unbelievable. But so you, you've got the infrastructure in place. The problem is, you know, when I first got to town, it was all about Ray Meyer and DePaul and all that success. And, you know, I got to know Joey pretty well on some plane rides. And it was so difficult to recruit. Because it, it was hard to keep, you know, all these spectacular Chicago high school players 
how do you talk them into staying home when you could go away to Duke or North Carolina or, and get out of the city and get out of your situation? Uh, plus, uh, the academic requirements for DePaul eliminated a lot of public school kids. And, and Joey would just talk about how hard it was to recruit and even raise great teams. Uh, a lot of controversy and, you know, backdoor dealings went on. Everybody knows all the stories. You know, it's pretty corrupt, but that's the way it was. Um, here's the thing. My first stop, Stubblefield got fired. I'm like, they need to go get a big name and overpay him, which is the exact opposite of your friend. And that's what he's worried they're going to do. Yes. Uh, I, you need to go get a high-profile, big-name guy, maybe even pull somebody out of retirement who's not too far out of the game yet and build an entire ad campaign around him because obviously college basketball it's about the coach and because the players are changing every year more than ever now with transfer portal and nil deals and everything else and so you know as players the, the team doesn't have an identity it's about the coach and they they really need I mean, look at Rick Pitino. I, I see a lot of St. John's games are being carried because Pitino's the head coach now. Mm-hmm. And they're doing okay. They're like 13 and five or something. And, but, and he's obsessed. He's one of these guys. He'll, he'll die. It's like oxygen if he's not coaching. And he's screaming and yelling at his players and he's so intense. And it's like, you know, give me a break. So there is a real negative side to, you know, going after an iconic guy like him just because of the name. But I have to tell you, Andy, that's the first thing I thought of. DePaul needs to go for broke and get a huge name to give credibility to that program. Any names uh, you could think of off the top of your head? No, no, I can't right now. But I, I don't, you know, who is, who would leave their current positions, you know? I mean, you're not going to get a Calipari. You know, you know you're not going to get... Uh, Oh, hell. I mean, you're not going to get... Uh, I mean, Jay Wright was the first name that came to my brain. Wow. That's that's a great call. That's a great call. But Jay's a TV guy now, you know, and he made all his money and, you know, he still gets to wear his cool suits. And uh, I think there was a burnout thing with Jay. I mean, he was so successful, but... It's a wonderful deal where you can make a lot of money and stay close to the game without the pressure, just do TV, you know? Chris Beard was the second guy that came to my head. Well, Chris Beard, God, his name comes up for every single job there is. But I think you even need to go bigger than him. You know, Jay Wright, that, that would be incredible. But you'd have a tough time pulling him out of, out of the set or the broadcast booth. All right, Mark, one last question. The, yeah. Bear, the Bears draft. What should they do? What will they do? The general consensus consensus among all these so-called insiders, former coaches, scouts, players who have now become members of the media, they're going to use the number one pick and take Caleb Williams. And it's funny how the story keeps changing every week. I remember a couple of weeks ago, rumor has it or reports are circulating that while interviewing Offensive coordinator candidates, Matt Eberflus was pumping Justin Fields and saying, you know, we need a guy who can really develop Fields and just talked about Fields constantly. 
this week, another report comes out. All during offensive coordinator interviews, Matt Eberflus was talking about scenarios with Caleb Williams. (laughs) The exact opposite report. But I think I have no inside information. I've been out of the game for three years. But if you just take all the rumors, reports, claims, lump them all together, it appears to me they're going to take Take Caleb Williams. Justin Fields is going to wind up in Atlanta uh, with the number nine pick. They'll trade that to get more picks. Uh, they still need another wide receiver. They, they need a bunch of stuff. They're going to let Eddie Jackson go. Um, but they are better. I'm not a big man, Eberflus fan at all. The guy's devoid of any kind of personality. I always gauge things on how good a soundbite you are and what kind of a personality you have, which is <laughs> – a crutch that I've always had as a media guy. You know, I'm being selfish. I want a good soundbite. But um, Eberflus on a soundbite would be whatever the Google to the negative of zero would be. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, the whole up the sleeve comment, he thought that was really funny and clever. But, I, you know, you see these videos behind the scenes that were released by the Bears media department, make that clear, of him calling guys in who have been named to the Pro Bowl and surprising them, um, the locker room stuff after a win, um, things he said in his office, you know, like kind of uh, card knocks access. And it appears that the players really like him, even though he's just kind of a schmo. He's, he's a defensive guy. So they hire Eric Washington, who was a uh, – Bears assistant back in the early 2000s, most recently with the Bills as their D-line coach. He's the new defensive coordinator, but it's still unclear whether Eberflus is going to continue to call the defensive signals. So that's kind of a gray area. They've retooled the entire offensive side of the ball as far as coaching staff goes. That's all good. This all seems to be pointed in the right direction. And I think Poles and the McCaskies stayed with Eberflus because it appears it appears that he's held this team together through another shitty season, very up and down, very inconsistent. So I think that's why he still has a job. Will he have a job after this coming year? I don't know. I hope not. Um, Yurko, my great buddy on ESPN radio, John Yurkovich, who, you know, played for the Packers and the Cowboys and the Jaguars and the Browns. Uh, just a just a goof, just a crazy guy, and I love him. He's all on board with Eberflus, and he claims the Bears are going to win the division. And my retort is, are they moving Green Bay and Detroit to another division? I mean, while they've improved, they've still got a long way to go. I still don't think Eberflus is the guy, but I think they're going to take Caleb Williams. That resets the rookie contract clock. And, you know, good luck to Justin Fields elsewhere. And you know, you know as a long-suffering Bears fan that wherever Fields goes, he's going to be successful with better coaching. All right. A couple things. First, first, first question I've got. If you're making a play on Caleb Williams, is it nuts to also make a play on Lincoln Riley as your coach? Uh, I'm thinking, you know, Lincoln Riley could turn out to be Cliff Kingsbury. Uh, okay, but you're holding on to Matt Eberflus right now. <laughs> right. Oh, if, if we just want to go Eberflus versus him, 
I would roll the dice, but the McCaskies are never going to take a chance like that. Yeah, but don't you want you when you're taking a quarterback? They always go halfway. That Lincoln Riley would be a huge splash higher. They they don't do that kind of stuff. And and that goes to the one Super Bowl title in the Super Bowl era. Why, if you're taking a quarterback number one who's really just screams of a guy that needs his diapers changed, he screams it. I mean, he, this kid absolutely screams, change my diapers. Why would you not bring his coach with him? I totally understand that logic. And, you know, I have to be super critical and super suspicious of, you know, how Williams is being portrayed, although seems pretty factual to me that he's he's a mama's boy Mm -hmm. he's a whiner he's a a privileged you know he's already talking about what he wants in his contract and you know uh, he is the product of today's athletic environment and and today's celebrity environment um i'm i'm frightened with the with the family i'm frightened that he's lonzo ball 2.0 yeah yeah could be could be well his most recent comment was, I watch Patrick Mahomes and there isn't anything that he does that I can't do. <laughs> okay. Well, now, now I got it. Now I'm worried about the wonder look test. <laughs> but he's spoiled rotten <laughs> and he's a, he's a kid of privilege and he doesn't have a very thick skin. And if you're going to take offense to some comments by the media, when you're in college, look at USC is not, the pro team of Los Angeles anymore, the way it used to be. And LA media, by the way, is pretty soft compared to Chicago, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, everything else. Um, I'm not sure he could handle the pressure right now, but I'm just saying all indications are the bears are going to take him. What would you do? I would, I, I trade all the picks. I trade them all and load up. And I would, when, when they hired uh, Walton, Walden from the Seahawks reports there were, okay, he not only coached Russell Wilson, but he revitalized Geno Smith's career. So, okay, they're hiring Shane Waldron because they're going to keep fields. You know, that was the consensus a few weeks ago. Um, But if they're talking of Caleb Williams during all the OC interviews, who knows what the correct story is? You know, you can say sources tell me and you're off the hook. It's, it's just, I don't trust, I don't trust any of the reporting, to be honest with you. So it's going to be interesting either way. It really is. But you're starting over a quarterback once again. And I think it is a money thing too. You're going to pay Justin Fields 40 million plus down the road. No. Why has there never been a guy that can play quarterback at Soldier Field? It, it is truly amazing, isn't it? I mean, it, Mark, it's the Bermuda Triangle of quarterbacks. Well, if you have to keep referencing Sid Luckman during the war, <laughs> you know, I mean, Jim McMahon was a great leader and an incredible character. He couldn't throw a spiral to save his, save his life. He was not a conventional quarterback. And he was always hurt. He wasn't available. And that's the closest we've come. Well, you've got Cutler. You've got Jay Cutler, rocket arm. Just a horrible person, bad attitude. Um, God, if you could just morph a couple of these guys together and, and just make the the fifty million dollar man out of parts, it, I don't know. I, I don't know what the deal is where quarterbacks come here to die. It just 
And by the way, can we dispel the whole bear weather thing? Because that went away when the Niners came in here and kicked the bear's butt. Well, we can dispel it on a couple fronts. Right. We forget that, okay? Right. And Soldier Field should, should have been domed when they renovated it. And now I love how they're still playing the city against Arlington Heights, Kevin Warren going back and forth, back and forth. And now there's talk again that, you know, it's still alive to have a new stadium here right next to me. I live at Roosevelt's in Indiana. It would be built right next to me on the tracks. Um, mm. And once again, people forget you can't develop the lakefront. Okay. You'd have to reroute Lakeshore Drive again to make for more parking. And you can't put any shops and restaurants and stores around a stadium that's built on the water because it's park district property. So, You'd have to build it on the other side where the train tracks are. Uh, it's a whole logistics thing. So they're playing Arlington Heights against the city of Chicago. We've got a new mayor who's really struggling. Um, so we'll see what happens there. But I don't know what it's been about because it's never been a wide open offense. The 85 Bears, it was not a wide open offense. It took so long for the Bears to adapt to the modern game. It really has. Because it's just about the quarterback, and it's just about throwing it. And me being an AFL guy, that's why that league was so popular and forced the mergers, because you just threw on every down. It was wild. It was the most colorful, innovative league to challenge an established league in sports history. And the Bears were so late to adapt to all the changes in the NFL over these many, many years. I think that's probably the reason that they never had a quarterback. But it, it's brutal to watch what goes on at Green Bay where it's Favre into Rodgers into Love, and you're sitting here referencing Sid Luckman. Yeah, and I hate doing it. You know, I think you have to update it and reference Jay Cutler. You have to take it from that point because, you know, people don't even know who Sid Luckman was anymore. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and I even find myself, my references are so old. Um Yesterday, real quick story, people outside of Chicago. Well, this thing got off to a quirky start when we started talking about the Whispers. So, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My all-time favorite group. I was so impressed that you know them. But uh, I was at WGN Channel 9 yesterday, and the great Tom Skilling, the most iconic legendary yes. meteorologist in the history of local television, is retiring. Hmm. And uh, Tom and I have had the same agent forever. So they called a bunch of old-timers. Myself, I was honored to be included in a group with Carol Marine, who mm. I anchored with at Channel 5, Bill Curtis, the most iconic local yes. news anchor, uh, who was at CBS at Channel 2, Lori Lightfoot, the former mayor, and mm. some other uh, characters of Chicago over the past 40 or 50 years. And we were all, the, the bit was, we we're all auditioning to take Tom's job upon his retirement. And, you know, we're constantly being rejected and doing bits and just ad-libbing stuff. And my whole take was, I stole this from Jim Bouton, who did this way back when, when he was on the Yankees. He was doing the weather at a local station in New York. And he's like, we got a high-pressure system coming in from the American League East, which is going to bring rain and drizzle to the NFC North and do that whole bit. And then we did this thing about Green Bay, where I said, well, we go to Green Bay on the bigger picture here, and... They got the youngest team in the league, and they look great in the playoffs. 
they made great strides and they've got a quarterback again. So that means three more years of bad winter for the Bears. And that's exactly what it's going to be. The Lions and the Packers are on their way. And it has to eat your heart out as a Bear fan. This is the third iconic quarterback. It looks like Jordan Love is just going to continue the legacy there. And, you know, the Vikings, they're they're in flux. But, you know, the Lions have built something. So as, as much work as the Bears have done, and they've gotten much better, and they've seemed to have gone about hirings in the proper way, they're still going to finish third. They really are. <sighs> Sad to say. I mean, it's funny you just mentioned uh, Jim Bowden. Am, am I crazy that Ball 4 was the greatest sports book ever written? And am I also crazy that I cried at the end of it? you're not crazy and think of the courage it took back then for him to write it to pull back the curtain and to break the man code and betray yep. the locker room code yeah uh and remember as soon as the book came out where did he wind up the seattle pilots that's right <laughs> and they were around for one season mark one season and then went to milwaukee right but uh yeah, I mean, he had death threats and everything else for for just exposing everything. But it was like Watergate, you know, that opened up a whole new way of covering sports and politics and government. You know, it was okay. Nobody's going to protect it anymore. Hey, you talk about these old sports writers who protected Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford and, and Ty Cobb, Pepitone and Billy Martin going out all night carousing, picking up women. Ty Cobb. Going nuts. Yeah. Well, we did the same thing with Jordan and all those guys. Like, no one would ever challenge Ditka or Jordan, except Carol Marine, who challenged all their uh, charity, charitable foundations and so forth and found that they weren't all on the up and up. But I was guilty of it myself. I'm not standing back as this holier-than-thou guy. Um, I was guilty of it, too. No one would ever challenge these people back then. And, again... What really hit home for me was when the Bulls decided to do this ring of honor and they booed Jerry Krause's widow. Uh, mm. So such low it, class, we, we all, such low we class. We all mocked Jerry Krause. We all mocked him in the media because, you know, we all went with Jordan and, you know, he was easy to mock. But, you know, people... Don't realize he created that dynasty, and all people remember him as the guy who tore it down because of the last dance, the Jordan production. Um, so again, I just, I just want to make it clear after our long, great interview here, everything I say, being critical of other people in the media, I was guilty of it myself. In yeah. retrospect, when you look back, it's like, damn, I should, I shouldn't have been doing that. I shouldn't have been a sheep going along with the crowd and just say, oh, yeah, yeah, it, it's easy to criticize, you know. I almost feel like we've created the the marching Greco ball four in this interview, and I mean that. I don't want to compliment myself, but this has definitely <laughs> evolved into the into the marching Greco. Uh, unbelievable. With that well, said. out there, Andy, it's a tribute to your interviewing skills. You know, you're like Howard Stern. You've got it all out of me. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it so much. Um with that said, our final question. I swear I've said that about 10 times. So um on the on the I can't get the Jim Bounton ball four thing out of my brain. Is is at Mark Jean Greco's point in history right now, where you're at, would you ever I, I 
I am, I, I, I can't stand people to do a tell all book, but if there's a person where I would read every ounce of it and could do it and has the right to do it, I, I would think it would be you. I mean, is that of interest to you to, to write a book of all the things that you just talked about for the last hour and a half and how there was this protectionism of athletes, complicitness that you talked about being part of, uh, protecting people like Michael Jordan against Jerry Krause, who built the team and the Bears mediocrity and, you know, this this whisper. I mean, is, is that of interest to you at all? Well, I have to tell you, I've been approached many, many times to write one. And I just, I have this thing in me that says, don't do it, man. Like, nobody's going to buy it. Nobody cares. Uh, every sportscaster in the country has written a book. Um, but I've been approached many times, just like I was so flattered that I had all kinds of job offers as soon as I got fired uh, from radio and TV stations and podcasts in Chicago. Um, yeah, the book thing, I've, I've kicked it around. I've revisited it a few times. And I'm like, you know, I, I just need to go. I just need to move on. I'm loving retirement. I'm loving my new life. I love being a civilian. I love being a casual fan. Because to be honest with you, Andy, you know, I covered baseball and basketball because I had to. Not my favorite sports. I'm a football hockey guy. That's all I really care about. So it's nice to be able to pick and choose what I want to be entertained by as a quote-unquote civilian. It's great. The pressure's off. You don't have to know what's going on 24-7 every day. You don't have to watch every show and read every piece of content. But, you know, sometimes I get up and I say, you know what, I'd love to write. A book because I have so many great funny stories that are true. Have I embellished them over the years? A little bit, but what I'm proud of is they all really happen and they're all true. And I was so lucky and privileged to be exposed to all these events. And I'm not talking about six NBA championships, three Stanley Cups, two World Series, you know, uh, two Super Bowls. I'm talking about what went on in the locker room after it was over, what went on at practice, just standing on the sidelines, just private, cool stuff that I witnessed. And again, I would have to temper some of that, but I don't want to break the man code. I don't, I don't want to call out people. I mean, there are secrets that I have held forever that I would never divulge about athletes because to be honest with you, I, was a part of whatever they were doing that night sometimes, yeah. you know, yeah. way back in the 80s. So, yeah, I've got a million stories and I'm tempted to tell them, but I just think me writing a book, it's like, eh, it's another sportscaster writing a book. Nobody's going to buy it except maybe a couple people in the business. But I'm, I'm in enough books written by other sportscasters and sports writers that that's almost enough for me. <laughs> uh. This has been such a thrill, Mark. Oh, I really enjoy it, Andy. Uh, wonderful. I mean, you, you've got some true skills. You're a knowledgeable guy who does his homework. Uh, I'm so happy for your success. I'm glad that this podcast has taken off for you. And uh, it's nice you've got a fallback, but man, you ought to continue to pursue this. Thanks, Mark. We're going to do it again. Okay, Andy. Be good. Say hi to the... To all the people from high school and uh, say hi to your mom and uh, we will talk again soon.
Thank you, Mark. This episode of Taking It to the Streets is brought to you by Wrightwood Medical, the leader in used and refurbished medical equipment. Wrightwood specializes in ultrasound equipment, but can also be your vendor of choice when sourcing lower cost alternatives for your operating room suites, scanning the entire medical spectrum. From single physician offices to larger hospitals, Wrightwood is the lower cost solution for your everyday medical equipment needs, and all of Wrightwood's equipment comes with warranty. You can reach Wrightwood directly at www.wrightwoodmedical.com. That is with a W, W-R-I-G-H-T-W-O-O-D medical or 773-848-7100. Again, 773-848-7100. If it's used medical equipment, it's Wrightwood Medical. Welcome back to Taking It to the Streets. It's Andy Goldman, and thank you so much to Mark Jean Greco. I truly enjoyed that interview deeply. And for my two cents, I think Mark genuinely got screwed by the new establishment of radio and television. And I think this is just my take. He played the high road, which was nice. But for the general manager, the program director, nobody had his back. To me, it screams of they wanted to get him for his off-color remarks that were made completely on information that was false on Walter Payton many years ago. I think they kept a little bit of a tab on him. And even though they were signing him to long-term deals, I felt like they kind of still had it out for him. And they waited for their moment. But the one thing about sports that's undeniable, and we talked about in an interview, is it's the toy section for all of us. Even though I talk about it seriously, you think about it seriously, we all kind of try to make analogies, you know, to our regular lives and life in general. It's still the toy section. So when Mark Jean Greco or whomever does their sportscast, they're trying to give you a little bit of a respite from your own life. Part of the respite is the intro and the outro. Okay, it's not just the sports cast. So I have a feeling they would have been just fine if he was making fun of a fan at United Center. You get the point. A drunk at Soldier Field, they just didn't like the outro. They didn't like the give back to the anchor, and they made a mountain out of a molehill. And from there, obviously, we know what happened. But my contention is, is that it is the toy department. It's not the Ukraine. It's not the migrant issue in Texas. It's not the Middle East conflict. It's not the election. It's sports. And part of the sports cast is the intro and the outro. So a shame to see a true just legend have to bite the dust the way he did. But Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I truly hope to have you here in season two to have another candid discussion. Okay, on to the Super Bowl. Super Bowl 58 from Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas. Should be a good one. I looked at the game differently than I look at all the other games I've given you. And folks, Championship Sunday, we were 2-0. and On Divisional Weekend, we were 3-1. and Don't want to brag. We don't like to look in the rearview mirror. You can rewind the tapes. But we've been hot on this show. So here we go on Super Bowl Sunday. And as I was just about to say, I'm looking at this game differently than I look at other games because it's the most efficient line you're ever going to see. The amount of bets are ridiculous. The props, 
it is what it is. The line is correct. So there's no need to try to read into a reverse line movement or an edge of sorts. I think you have to lean on historical trends for this one game. Longer halftime, longer timeouts, pressure is ridiculous. You get the point. In doing the homework for this game, I came up with a couple of different themes. Both of them said Kansas City. One of them was the team that's been worse for the last 10 games. Okay. So Kansas City's seven and three in their last 10 games. San Francisco's eight and two. That team is 16 and three against the spread. The worst team last 19 times that that situation has played out. The team with the worst record entering the Super Bowl is 18-2-1 against the spread. That team is Kansas City. So on two fronts, the recency bias of sorts, where it's the last 10 games, that points to Kansas City. And the long-term season in full points also to Kansas City. So it's not about Mahomes. It's not about Kelsey. It's not about Taylor Swift. It's really about the numbers. But here's the key game of the postseason that I think springboards and makes these numbers maybe mean a little more sense to you. It was that frozen, frigid game at Arrowhead between the Dolphins and Kansas City, the Kansas City won. A lot of people say, oh, it's the Dolphins or a warm-weather team. Uh, they, they, they were misfit in that spot. Of course, Kansas City won. It's not about that. It's about the fact that if you win, you're, if you're a well-oiled machine like the Kansas City Chiefs are, well-coached, Reed and Spagnola, and you win that wild card game, the numbers here that I've just given you say that you're a live team. And a lot of times you'll deliver on the promise. So careful misconstruing that week of rest and the home games that ensued afterwards. Because San Francisco, let's be honest, they needed some help against those two teams. I like both of those two teams, but it shouldn't have been that hard. And it was hard. And they got rest. On the other hand, you've got a team that's playing in the cold. Two of the three are on the road. But the numbers point to Kansas City as far as the trends go. Now we get to the elephant in the room. Andy Reid off the bye. Okay, this guy we know is a legend when he's given that extra week of preparation. 13-1 and one as a member of the Eagles off of a bye. 8-2 and two with the Chiefs. You add him up, including the playoffs. He's 30-6 and six with an extra week to prepare. That's a football coach. And his career mark is 283, 60-1. That's a 64% clip. Shanahan, on the other hand, is 64 and 51. He's a 55% coach. Can you forgive Kyle a couple years ago for losing the game to Kansas City in the Super Bowl where they were in control the entire way and seemingly something happened when Emmanuel Sanders dropped that ball and the wheels came off and Kansas City ends up winning the Super Bowl when these two met. Can you forgive him? You can forgive him for last year when Purdy went down and Johnson went down, I think, as the backup quarterback. I mean, they were out there starting Christian McCaffrey, quarterback, in the second half. Just draw a line through that game. That's fine. We'll forgive that. But the Super Bowl, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I really like Shanahan, but the truth is, going to the numbers, he's a 55% coach. This is his seventh year. This is his second trip to the Super Bowl. Okay, again, if you're a Chicago fan, you're drooling, but the rest of us, 
it's borderline pedestrian. He's got zero titles to show, and there's a buildup about Kyle Shanahan. I'm part of it. I like him. I really do. I think he's a great coach, and I like this team, but there's just something weird about the John Lynch, Kyle Shanahan-led San Francisco 49ers. I just don't visualize them holding, hoisting the Lombardi Trophy with the streamers coming down. I just can't get there in my brain. And I want to close with this Kansas City special teams. This is the part that I can't get past. Okay, a couple of years ago against Cincinnati, Sky Moore takes that kickoff. Huge return. The next play or two was when Mahomes took the hit out of bounds against Cincinnati. Butker comes out, makes the field goal. They escape against Joe Burrow and Cincinnati. Last year in the Super Bowl, Kadarius Toney, in the fourth quarter, takes that punt back almost for a touchdown. Huge tie turn moment for Kansas City. Those are special teams plays, and they've got the best kicker arguably in the game, right, with Justin Tucker. And in the postseason, this guy, Butker, is an 87.5% make. Folks, on 35 kicks, and I don't know how many of those are over 45 yards, but I think there's a bunch. There's only two guys in the history of the game that are in that dialogue. One of them's uh, Mason Crosby, 88.6, and one of them's Stephen Gostowski, 89.1%. They put it in context, we think of Vinatieri being a monster and ice in his veins in the postseason, all those incredible years with New England and with Indy. He's an 80% postseason kicker. I don't like that kid Moody. The kicker for San Francisco, he came out tight last week, missed a kick early against Detroit. He's a rookie. He's in over skis. Kansas City special team is going to have a say. That's my take on it. They've had a say in huge games under Andy Reid in the last five years. This special teams has really made a difference. So I'm going to side with the Chiefs. I'm going to take the two points. Again, I want to thank Mark Jean Greco, but most of all, I want to thank everybody for listening to the show, emailing me on Spotify, wherever you find me, Amazon, iHeart, Apple. We will be back next season and we look forward to it. But for now, from St. Pete, Florida, I'm Andy Goldman, and it's been a pleasure. We'll see you next season. Goodbye from St. Pete. And remember, folks, you're only as good as your last trade. So never too high, never too low till we meet again. Mm -hmm.